Welcome to episode number I don't know. Uh, it's episode interns because it's just me, AC, and Tina. Yeah. Um, the pastors and the residents have left the building, and so this is our one chance to not get ourselves fired. Probably our only chance. Yes. Um, so, anyways, we're here to talk about Jeremiah and the implications of Jeremiah. Um, so. You know how we do. We try to open up the podcast with a silly out-of-the-box question. So the silly out-of-the-box question for which Tina does not have an answer for. No, I got one. I got oh, one Oh, she now. does have yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready Is, for it. If, if you had to assign one musical artist or group of any genre, any time period, to make an album that explored the themes of Jeremiah, who would it be? What would the name of the album be? And what would the album artwork look like? Okay, so I know we do a lot of hip-hop in this podcast, and I'm also partial to hip-hop, but we got to broaden our horizons a little For bit. Sure. we got a broad audience here. No echo chambers. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to go country today, mm-hmm. and because I watched The Voice, I know who Blake Shelton is, and he was like, I think, one star of the year or something at some point. So I'm going to name the album The Places We Go and The Idols We Serve. I just feel like that would be a country country album title. And probably have like a like a big pickup truck like mm-hmm. driving down the highway, you mm-hmm. know, like kind of like with clouds in the distance. I just I feel like country would really capture the uh, the tone of Jeremiah. I, you know what? I have to agree. Yeah, I have to agree that uh, I'm sure someone lost their dog. Yep. In Jer- <laughs> oh, for sure, dogs were lost in Jeremiah. Yes. You know, um, someone's truck broke down. No someone's doubt. mom went to prison. Uh, yes. <laughs> I country music? Yes. Not, is it? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I've heard one song, and this is this is not this is not suitable for work. The actual song, but like I've heard of a song, you know, having lived in Texas, where it was like someone was like, it's not a real country music unless you talk about mama, prison, uh, dogs, and trucks. <laughs> yeah. So I think I think that's a good fit. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna have to go with Kendrick. Always a good I, choice. I think that Kendrick does a really good job of like lamenting injustices, mm. and I think that in Jeremiah you have a lot of injustices that are exposed and they're really the downfall of society. And so I think if I was going for really like cheesy Christian title, maybe I would say like Good God, Mad City. <laughs> there um, you go. But if something like more serious, I'd say maybe like The Evils of Lucy or something. I don't know. And then the artwork. So the artwork on the album. For yeah. the country album by The Voice, is that what his name is? Uh, he was on a show. <laughs> <laughs> he was on <laughs> He was on a show called The Voice. Oh, there's Voice. a show called The Voice. Yes. Blake Shelton. Blake Shelton. Yes, that's his name. He's well, he had a thing with Gwen Stefani for a little while now. She did she was on No Doubt, right? Yes, yes. She, okay. Okay. I yeah. think We're I on the same page now. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what would, what would the artwork look like on the album? That was the pickup truck. Oh the pickup Driving truck. into the distance, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. that's really good. Um, I did see on Twitter, uh, it was actually John Piper's son tweeted, Christian authors resolve never to have a tree, a dock, a cloud, a road, or a face on your book covers. I failed. I got a road in there. <laughs> a road, yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I was thinking like a ruined city with a beacon of light, but then when I saw that tweet, I thought maybe a beacon of light might be pushing it. A little bit, a little yeah. Bit, yeah. yeah. Kendrick would have a beacon of light mm. maybe on his album. Maybe it's just a ruined city. Yeah. And... Some some symbol of a glimmer of hope, like I don't know, maybe like a neon sign that still works. I don't know. You're like a rainbow, faded rainbow in the distance. We won't go down Rainbow Road. God's promise not to flood the earth. <laughs> I don't know. Talking about Jeremiah, Jeremiah, we always want to fit everything we talk about into the story. One of our habits as Christians is like we pick a verse. And then we try to say, what does this verse mean? And then we try to fit it into what the chapter means and into what the book means. And then sometimes we don't even think about what does the whole Bible as a whole mean. But it's also, it's always great to start with the whole. And so, um, Jeremiah, where does Jeremiah fit into that true story? Well, we saw in the beginning that God created everything and it was good. The whole world was good. And then he created humanity and it was very good because humanity was put in the garden to draw the potential out of creation and to rule over creation in such a way that it would promote flourishing. And we see that very soon after the fall takes place, uh, man rebels, Adam and Eve rebel against God 
and their relationship with God is distorted, their relationship with each other is distorted, their relationship uh, with themselves internally is distorted, and their relationship with the rest of creation is distorted and marred and broken and fallen. And so then, in the next uh, several chapters of Genesis 1 through 11, you see that the fall encompasses all of life, that sin is as far as creation. As Paul says in Romans, that uh, all of creation was subjected to futility. Genesis 12, God begins his mission to bring blessing back to all of the world, to restore all of creation back to a state of flourishing the way that it's supposed to be. And he begins by choosing a man, Abraham, who's going to become the nation Israel, who is going to be, as Exodus 19 says, a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? Stands between God and other people. And so um, the nation of Israel was to be a community of people that live in such a way that the rest of the world could look at them and see who God really is and that they could hear what God has to say to the rest of the world. Uh, and so Jeremiah fits into that. We saw earlier that Israel was, uh, they started as a ragtag group of slaves in Egypt and they were given liberty, they were given a land, and they were given the law. And they were given everything they needed to fulfill their identity, their calling. And yet, as we saw in the historical books leading up to Second Kings, we see that they ultimately failed in their calling and they lost their liberty and they lost their land and they abandoned the law and were subjected into exile in Babylon. And Jeremiah is prophetic literature. It fills in the gaps. It fleshes out the story of the historical books. And Jeremiah is one of the prophets during the time that this exile took place. And there's this huge shift in the arc of the story because when you get to the gospels, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people are waiting for a kingdom to come and they're waiting for a Messiah, a deliverer, a king from the line of David to come and usher in this new kingdom where sin will ultimately be done away with. The oppression of the Roman Empire will be taken away. Where does this shift go from where God's people in the land living out his law, living out the way he intended life to be to waiting for a kingdom? Jeremiah really is one of those turning points where they are removed from the land and they're put into exile and they begin to wait for the kingdom to come. And so um, the message of the book of Jeremiah is a, is a message of judgment, but it's also a message of hope. And Jeremiah spends a lot of time talking about the idols of, of Israel that led to their downfall and led to them being in exile, but also gives them hope for a new covenant, for a new king, for a new kingdom. And ultimately, that's how that book even points to Christ, because Christ comes onto the scene and ushers in the kingdom into human history as the king in the line of David. So, Tina, having like laid the groundwork for what Jeremiah is about, where it fits into the story, uh, Jeremiah talks a lot about idolatry and yeah. injustice. What is idolatry, first of all? Yeah, I think I think it's it's awesome. The way you told the story is so important to see this developing story as we take place because anytime we just read a section without the story, we can form our own um we we will put it into our own perspective or create our own story around it. And what we see is this people that has this this very very clear calling that God has equipped them for. Um and we see these two things are continually the greatest threat to that identity, to that calling, and that's idolatry and injustice. And I think the reason that these are the two greatest threats is because they're the two things that can undermine the greatest command um, that God gives both in the Old and that Jesus reiterates and fleshes out in the New Testament, the command to love God and love neighbor. So those two things are this two-part um, commandment that will always go hand in hand because when we worship, love, and serve God with, with our whole heart and singleness of heart, um, we will obey and serve the God who is the God of justice. And so we will always be loving our neighbor and seeking the flourishing of our neighbor because our worship will always lead to and be uh, congruent with our love of neighbor in the sense of seeking the flourishing and the justice of our neighbor. So as we see this sense of idolatry and injustice, how they go hand in hand, um, these are words that I think they can have 
meaning, you know, in, in a in the cultural sense, in the secular sense of, you know, American Idol or the sense of just injustice in the world. But when we really look at the biblical um, meaning of these, I think it's really important that we take a little bit of time to unpack what what are these and how do we see them revealed through the story that AC is telling up to this point. And, and I really, I want to go back to the garden again, because I think that the way that, that the Holy Spirit through the author, through the many authors writes this biblical story is just so incredible because he lays the foundation early on for all of these different pieces and um, tensions that get brought up throughout the story. So we see Adam and Eve, they were created to bear God's image and to rule God's world. And, and how? With justice. So justice is the way that God created this his good world to run. Justice is, is the rule of the universe for things to work according to the order, wisdom, love, self-giving love of the Father. And so when Adam and Eve's hearts were submitted um, to an obedience to their maker and creator and king, and when they worshiped him alone, they did justice. That was the natural state of how things were. And injustice didn't enter in until Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve in their hearts rebelled against God's um, good authority. And we see that they chose to worship uh, pleasure, chose to worship autonomy, um, and chose to reject the, the God of all justice. And that that is when we see injustice um, enter into the world. We see this deviation from how God created things to be, and we see it on every level. And I think this is important too when we talk about in relational or personal injustices versus systemic injustices. Part of the reason that, that it has to be both and is because God created us to rule and subdue and to create culture. We see that in the very beginning of our identity um, and to reflect him in all the world. And so he shared his power of being able to create um, with us and commissioned us to do so. And in his grace um, and in him seeking to restore humanity uh, to the fullness of glory of how he created man and woman to be, he left us with that vocation to continue to create culture. But in our fallen state, now that we don't worship God alone and that we will always perpetuate injustice in this world in our flesh, we create and perpetuate those injustices and systems and death and decay in our world um, continue to, to create those injustices. So we have to look at it not only on a personal, but also a systems level as well. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I I think a lot of times we think of um, we think of sin only on an individual level. Uh, we think when I think of you know if I'm confessing my sin uh, in a time of prayer, or if I'm thinking of uh, what are the things I'm not supposed to be doing, I think of personal things. I shouldn't be getting drunk. I shouldn't be committing sexual immorality. I shouldn't be lying to people. Um, I shouldn't be sleeping at work, even if I'm really tired. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I think of personal level, but we're also, we live in a society and we can do things as a society. And I think that at the root of sin is idolatry. Um, and idolatry, if you're new to redemption, if you're new to the podcast, there's certain terms and phrases we use all the time that is part of our lingo that can be unfamiliar. And idolatry is one of those things. And idol is, is not a statue on a dashboard, although it can be. It's, it's something that we put in the place of God. Yeah. Um, I think of Colossians 3, 5, when Paul tells the Colossian church to put to death the parts of their sinful nature, like sexual immorality. And then he even says greed, which is idolatry, which really shows that idolatry isn't just false religions like Mormonism and uh, Islam, things like that, but that it's a religion is, is, can be money. A religion can be comfort and security or uh, an idol or a religion or something that we worship, something that we hold of supreme importance could be anything. And when we do that, when we hold something other than God at supreme importance, it results in injustice or it results in sin. It results in things not being the way that they're supposed to be. I think of this movie, I think it's called Grand Canyon, uh, where there's this scene where this dude comes and he's driving through a sketchy part of town in a really nice car. His car breaks down. He 
calls for a tow truck driver and as he's waiting these five people come up to him and they're like starting to put fear in him and they're about to jump him take his ride and the tow truck driver comes and he says to them man the world ain't supposed to work like this maybe you don't know that but this ain't the way it's supposed to be i'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if i can and that dude's supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off everything is supposed to be different than what it is here and that's sin Mm-hmm. That's injustice. It's not the way that it's supposed to be like it was in the garden. You know, God gave us the garden. He gave us creation and said, bring out the potential, you know, and that's something crazy because when I think of creation, I think of trees, I think of rocks, and I think of dirt. But when I don't, when I think of creation, I don't think of freeway systems. I don't think of public schools. I don't think of fried chicken and waffles. You know, all of that is creation. And so I do. That's the first thing I think <laughs> Now it is. Like when you talk about creating culture, and that's what we're supposed to be do. Like, you know, creating culture is bringing out the potential out of creation, and it's not just rocks, dirt, and trees, but it's it's humanity and the way that we interact with each other. And then you know, and then at the at the bedrock of that is marriage, and marriage produces families. And then when you have a bunch of families together, it produces a society. They build homes, and it becomes a city. And then you have politics, and then you have. Uh, commerce and economics and you have all these things that tie us all together and the way we live as a whole and if the way we live as a whole we hold something as supremely important something that's not God then that's going to lead to injustices or sin at a social level at a systemic level and I think that's why it's so important to going back to earlier in the story in Exodus when God gives the people a law the very next thing he does, in which I guarantee me and a lot of us, when we first started reading the Bible as new Christians, like we slept through this part of the story, is he gives instructions for building the tabernacle. Mm. And then not only does he give like very detailed instructions with like blue and purple curtains and all this stuff, but like... <laughs> Figs on the lining of the... Yeah. And then like he goes around and then the rest of Exodus is a repeat of the very same thing. It's like, okay, and then they did it this way, you know, and then you put the two fingers next to your head and you're like... <laughs> Skip, skip. I'm going to the Gospels. But why is that there? Why is it so important? Because at the center of their society was to be the worship of God, that he was supremely important. And the mission that he gave them is supposed to give meaning to the way they do even politics, the way that they do, if they had sports, the way they do technology, the way they do the economy, everything. And then you see the law covers everything, all of life. And which is why we here at Redemption 10P say all the time, all of life is all for Jesus. It's not just personal decisions I make that sin, but it's things that we do as society when we hold things important more than God. So, um, kind of backing up to the story, Tina, um, what was Israel's identity? I know you t- you hit on it before, like overall humanity, what our identity was to create culture and things like that. What was Israel specifically during the time of Jeremiah? What was their identity? What was their calling? Yeah, I think the phrase a light to an, a light to the nations is a really important phrase that I think it's lost and, and has gotten lost in the church as we've read scripture kind of us centric on um, you know the church and not thinking about the fact that Israel had this rich calling that fulfilled the mission of God um, up to that point and failed to fulfill the mission of God just like we do today. But I think what you just said about the tabernacle as this this starting point of the people is another important part of their identity is that the, this was a people, um, where God dwelt in their midst and they worshiped God alone and they obeyed God's law, um, for every aspect of the social realm. And those, those things were intrinsically tied. There is, there was no living in God's presence, um, while breaking his law and perpetuating injustice. That's where we see in, uh, in this, these early Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, this really kind of harsh, even in Joshua and Judges, this harsh, um, judgment of sin and this kind of like being outside the city and being unclean and all these questions. And it was because the worship of God and the love of neighbor and, and creating a just society had to go hand in hand because for God to dwell in the midst of a people and for him to put his name on that people essentially 
Ricardo talked about this in church this morning. If you haven't gone, if you didn't get to go, definitely listen online. But we are witnesses. Israel, they were bearing witness because they bore the name of Yahweh. So I think that the two-part identity of Israel is where we see in Jeremiah the breakdown so much is that they were a people who worshiped God alone and where God dwelt in their midst, and a people who obeyed because of their love of God, um, obeyed God in the fullness of his law and what he required of them. So when we see in Jeremiah the breakdown is we see that God was concerned for for all of it, for the whole society, for this whole nation. He, He... I see a lot, and I never noticed this before when reading uh, the Old Testament, but he talks about the land and how Israel is grieving the land with the blood that they're shedding and with with the way that they're treating it. And it is a sense where it is this holistic, God cares about his whole world. He created it good and beautiful. It is his masterpiece. And so we see... um, and definitely an emphasis on neglecting the vulnerable uh, because those are the ones that are most apt to be taken advantage of uh, and to be oppressed. But yeah, we see it in social relationships and family relationships um, and in their uh, relationship with other nations as they aren't bearing the name of Yahweh as they were supposed to, but they're actually defaming it by bowing down to the gods of the other cultures around them. Mm, That's really good. So, you know, you said that um, the way that they bowed down to the other gods around them really defamed God's name. Can you really tell us how idolatry and injustice threaten Israel's identity and threaten their mission? Like, why was that what led to their downfall? Hmm. Yeah, I think just to reiterate again, for God to put his name on a people group, he was showing to his whole world. And and going back to Abraham, God said that he would bless all nations of the world through the seed of Abraham. This was this was the the beginning. This was the hope. Israel was never supposed to be ethnocentric. We see from the very beginning that whenever foreigners were entering in or whenever they were having interactions with other nations, it was an evangelistic opportunity, as we would say today. It was an opportunity for them to put on display the name of God. And and the idea was that God was going to continue to build that um, through the years, but the breakdown happened so quickly. And so I think for God to put his name on a people and for them to misrepresent the God of, of the universe to the world, I can't think of something more devastating and more tragic, but that the only hope for the world, the, the God who is restoring all things, the creator who is full of justice and mercy and love and does desire to restore all things, if the people who bear his name are worshiping other gods and living according to those gods, then the rest of the world is going to look and say, oh, that God is just like ours. Mm. There's no hope. There's no There's no righteousness or justice in that God. And now the light of the world, the hope of the world is dimmed. And um, yeah, ultimately, as we would say in terms now, the good news, the gospel that the world so badly needs um, has now been dimmed because it looks like the rest of the world around them. That's really good. And I think of even how they did that, how they dim their light and, and, and really shut down the, the, the shouting of the good news down to a faint whisper by, mm-hmm. by a select few is there are these gods like Baal and Molech. Mm-hmm. And you had Molech, for example, one of the ways that he was worshipped was by sacrificing children. And so a direct result of their idolatry was to sacrifice children. Um, and Jeremiah talks about this in, um, I think, I forget which chapter, uh, but he's, he talks about the Valley of Hinnom and how um, in Jeremiah 19.4, they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods and they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. And the Valley of Hinnom uh, mentioned in Jeremiah 32, Jesus references that and he calls it Gehenna, which is in our English Bible, hell. When Jesus uses the word hell, he's using this name of a place that the Israelites knew very well. And it was outside the city where children were sacrificed to another God. It was a place of horror, Mm -hmm. of injustice, of idolatry, and a theme and a metaphor that Jeremiah uses quite frequently, adultery, where 
the people are cheating on their true love, the God of Israel, with these false lover gods outside the city in what you could say like the cheap motel outside the city limits. And you think of Molech. I also think of Baal and how Baal represented fertility. And so the people in the land decided to worship Baal because he promised to deliver fertility of the womb and of crops. And so if you have more children, then that means you have more labor to produce uh, more from the fields. And if the fields are producing more, that leads to economic security. It leads to wealth. It leads to power. It leads to influence. And so Baal promised these things. And so the people of Israel, because they valued security and wealth and power and comfort more than God, they were willing to dim the name of God and turn to worship Baal and do the things that Baal required. But what happens as a result of that, you see in Jeremiah that the poor are neglected. Because in order to get rich, you have to do it on the backs of others, oftentimes. And that's not an indictment against all wealthy people. And I'm not saying that's, I'm not like anti-rich, don't read into that. But historically, how do many rich people make their riches? And in the context of Israel and what Jeremiah is talking about, it's off the back of poor people. And it's in direct violation of the law, which said that in Leviticus, the year of Jubilee was every 50 years, the land goes back to the original owner. So if I go, if I go into debt and I have to sell my land, my children won't suffer because in 50 years, the land comes back. And you know what? 50 years for me is too late for me, but it's not too late for my kids. And so there's not this like perpetual poverty, but they neglected those laws and they oppressed the poor to where if you sold the land, then it stayed away from that family forever. And so kids were born into poverty and their kids were born into poverty and you have these, these unjust systems. And so now the rest of the world looks at Israel and they say, it's just like us. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that's really shutting down the good news. And so Tina, like I'm saying that and I'm talking about Israel then, but yeah. you could hear that and say, that sounds a lot like today now. Um, kind of talking, can you tell us what is our role now? What is our identity as a church now? Is it the same as Israel? Is it different? How is it the same? How is it different? What is, what is our identity as, as a church? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's both. And I think that we are still the people that bear the name of God that are called to be a light to the nations that God has chosen and in his wisdom and grace that we cannot understand, um, to, to include us as the people who represent him to the world that that hasn't changed. And that is, um, that is so important as we think about who we are. If, if we claim the name of Christ and we are a disciple of Christ, we essentially, how we live our lives in every aspect of life is telling people, this is who my God is. This is the God that I follow. This is Jesus. And not, and not just telling them with our words, but displaying it to them. There is nothing, there is nothing that's going to tell people more about what you really believe and what you really care about than what you do, how you spend your time and money and energy. And so that is still very true about the church, about the people of God collectively now around the world, rather than just in um, kind of a smaller location. But I think what what we have now that Israel didn't is we have the fullness of God displayed in the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel of the cross. Um, and so we have the character of the nature of this kingdom that God is ushering in that is fuller than Israel had. They craved and looked forward to this Messiah to accomplish what they could not, what they continued to fail to do. So we have that fullness of the picture of a God who comes down as a baby and dies in the most shameful, just horrendous way possible and bears all the shame of the world on display, showing the immense and immeasurable love of God and pouring um, himself out for the world. But then not only do we have an example in Jesus, but we have the power um, of the resurrection and ushering in this new age. And truly, this is an event in history. This isn't just something we talk about, the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know we have these phrases, but when we really think about this, Jesus conquered death. That is the, the promise that we see very early on in Genesis 3 of God will crush the head of the serpent of the enemy of sin, death, and chaos in our world. And so at the resurrection, Jesus conquered the power of sin and death. 
And we live in this time now as the church. We use this phrase a lot of the already, not yet. As a side note, I feel like we need our own urban dictionary, like Christian dictionary of like these phrases we use. People can look them up. Um, But we live in this time where we have been given the spirit. um, The church is now the temple of God and we collectively uh, have the spirit where we are being renewed inwardly and we are being renewed um, to have the power to be able to do what Israel could not do. Um, and to do it in a way where we are being transformed as we see the world around us transformed. That's really good. That's really good. Um, so if that's our calling and that's what we're supposed to be doing, if idolatry and injustice were the threat then to, to their identity, is idolatry and injustice, are those things threats to our identity and our calling? And if so, how, Tina? Yeah, I think 100%. Because um, once again, it comes back to this the great commandment that Jesus reiterated of loving God and loving neighbor. That remains to be... Um, Jesus says that the law is fulfilled. Like all of all of the ways that he describes the law and the Sermon on the Mountain, these ways that we love our neighbor, they are just kind of drawing out the implications, if you will, of what it means to love our neighbor. And I think why it's so important for the church today to think about this in idolatry and injustice as central um, threats to our calling is because in recent history in the West, in the church, we have kind of distilled down this our gospel to an individualist, um, kind of moralist, religious gospel that has to do with my personal salvation and getting to heaven and going to this other world. And as much as Redemption Tempe um, and Redemption as a whole, you know, would say that we believe all of life is all for Jesus and the kingdom of God spans the whole um the whole scope of creation and God is restoring all things. We believe that. But if you're anything like me, you grew up in church hearing these things about being spiritual and being religious and going off to heaven one day and my personal salvation, my personal Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lot of these things that it's not that they're not true. Jesus did save me from my sin and Jesus is going to take me to live with him in eternity kingdom on earth rather than off in a different spiritual reality. Um, But it's not that it's not true, but that when we narrow in so much, we distill down the gospel to something and it becomes something that it's not because the gospel starts with this global reality of God restoring every single square inch of creation. Um, and in that essentially is, is the social aspect of our world. I think there's a term that, um, unfortunately certain terms tend to get connotations. And so the, the term social justice, I think has grown and started to get these connotations that aren't good. So I don't think that's, that's maybe the best term to use, but I would ask the question of if, if justice is not social, what is it? I don't know if there is a justice that doesn't have a social aspect because God created this world. Um, I mean, God is, is social. God is in, in relationship um, in, the, in the Trinity. There is no aspect of creation in which there isn't this social aspect to our world. And so when we think about idolatry and injustice today, we have to think about the ways that if the gospel is as big as um, all of culture and all of human life, then how are we seeing the gospel come and challenge and be a contrast and call us as the identity of the church to be a contrast community in relation to the idols of our culture around us? So I think it starts with reading what the idols are and opening their eyes to the idols around us and recognizing that we live within those. So AC, you're you're really great at drawing out some of these idols. So what would you say are some of the most prominent idols in our culture today? I would have to say that the Denver Broncos. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. Um, this is a Raiders fan, by the way, so we're, we're not going to go there. The truth. <laughs> um, if I'm hearing you right, because you talked a lot about how we have made the gospel an individual story about how if I believe in Jesus, I get to go to heaven when I die, and that's it. And then if... I believe in Jesus. He'll help me do what I want to do and help me with my plans and my goals and my dreams. So what I'm hearing is that like, I still believe in the gospel, but my understanding of it is impacted 
by the idol of individualism because in our culture um, one of the things that we hold of supreme importance is individual happiness and individual freedom and even and it affects everything it, and and that's how you know something is a cultural idol to use that phrase that may be unfamiliar to some of you guys a cultural idol is something that we as a people we as a society together hold as a cherished value even more important than God himself. And one of those things can be that uh, as an individual, I should be happy and that I should be free to do the things that I want to do. And so that affects everything. It affects politics, for example. It affects, look at the rules of divorce. Hmm. You know, if I believe that individual happiness is something that's of utmost importance, then I'm going to make the rules for divorce easier. Hmm. You know, I can say, irreconcilable differences are a legitimate reason for divorce. Now, I'm not talking about divorce. It's not about divorce. So if you've been through divorce and that was what was going on, like I'm not, I'm not condemning or speaking condescendingly about that at all. What, I, what I'm trying to say is that if a culture says that the family is the most important thing, then they're going to make divorce extremely, extremely difficult and even looked down upon. Whereas I remember working at a job not too long ago and we were talking about a coworker and he had recently gone through a divorce and my boss said, well, you know what? He's happier. So good for him. You know, and so what she said showed that what we hold to society is individual happiness is more important. So she talks about this family breaking up and saying, well, that's good because he's happy. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas if we were in a culture that valued family over everything, she might say something. Wow, how sad I feel for the family. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm just saying that, like, that is what's held as supremely important. Now, there are traditional societies that hold family as an idol. So hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that individual happiness is a bad thing. And I'm not saying that the family is a bad thing. I am saying that when either of those things is held up as supremely important above all else, it becomes an idol as opposed to God, as opposed to Jesus is supremely important above all things. I look at sports, for example. Um, one of one of the idols in our culture is consumerism. And if you've yeah. been around Redemption long enough, you hear this word so much that you get sick of it. And you're like, <laughs> okay, I get it. I won't like spend all my money at the mall or whatever. Um, but no, consumerism is the idea that um, the goal of humanity and the best life is the life that's spent enjoying goods and services, whether it's possessions, whether it's trips to Maui, whether it's, you know, buying the best Mac with the best, uh, editing capabilities and the best microphones and the best art supplies, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, going to the best festivals or eating the best food, like it's all about enjoying life in any way you can. It's all about the enjoyment of life. It it affects everything. It affects sports. Because now, the only way that I can really, really enjoy a sport is if I win. So now winning is everything. You know, and, and, you know, sportsmanship takes a back seat. Uh, Teamwork takes a back seat. Celebrating the beauty of the opposing team, even if it is the Denver Broncos and the England Patriots, (laughs) beating the Oakland Raiders, you know. I can, I can, if, if it's all about consumerism and enjoying, then I can't really enjoy that. But if it's about God, then I can say, you know what? Like, even though I don't really like the New England Patriots, I can look at Tom Brady leading that team down in the Super Bowl and say the way that he had poise and the way that he had precision and the way that he defied pressure glorifies Jesus because in the garden, Jesus had poise through prayer. Mm. And on the cross, he precisely took down sin and he came back against all odds. You know, so so it, it like it depends on what do I hold supremely important? It affects everything. It affects sports. It affects politics. It affects church mm. to where is my Christianity, is Jesus all about me? And is when I read Jeremiah 29, which is one of the most like ripped out of context verses, like, <laughs> I know the plans I have for you. Do I think in terms of, okay, so my plans are, I'm going to have a good education, I'm going to have a good marriage, and I'm going to have a good life, and I'm going to enjoy the fruit of my labor and enjoy good things. And, and Jesus, if I believe in him, he's going to help me achieve those plans to yeah. enjoy life. Or am I hearing that my mission in life is to reflect Jesus to the outside world 
and to live him, live out who he is and what he's done and everything that I do, then I hear that verse and I think, okay, I might not get what I want and I might not enjoy life the way that I thought I would, but God is going to help me live out his mission one way or another. And so I think those are some of the, some of the idols that threaten us are like individualism, consumerism, um, even some of the baser things that might speak more home to some people is like comfort and security. Yeah. You know, Ricardo talked uh, in the message today in Acts chapter four about if we really believe that God will never let us down, why do we spend so much time trying to make ourselves feel safe rather than living in mission? And so what are the things that we do? politically to make us feel safe? What are the things that we do individually? What are the things that I do with my bank account to make me feel safe more than living in mission? So I think some of these questions kind of expose what what is idolatry? How does it affect us as a church? And how does it affect us living in mission? Yeah, I think that's so great. And I think to piggyback off that last thing you said is when we start to open our eyes to the cultural idols, Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful and it's really easy for us to trick ourselves about what our idols are. But when we see the collective idols and know that we always exist within those currents of society, and then we start to just put our heart before God, our anxieties, that's a great, great indicator of where our idols are, is what makes your heart anxious? What are you you afraid of? What do you feel yourself gripping tighter on? And then as we search our hearts, then we find ourselves, which idols do we specifically bow the knee to? Which idols are our communities bowing the knee to? And how do we um, act in repentance to worship God alone? And I think that um, I'm happy that you brought up the letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29, while it is taken out of context, it is a verse of rich hope. Um, and it was in the smack dab middle of this book on the gross injustices of God's people and the devastation that's happened in the society, God's judgment um, and his faithfulness through it. We see this letter. So this is like, this is a traumatic time in, in um, Israel's history and they're ripped away from their land and their people and they're in this this um, enemy nation and all of these prophets are speaking um, these things saying, okay, just two years and we're going to get out of here. And something, a theme in Jeremiah is that he talks about the leader speaking false peace. And that was one of the examples of them speaking, speaking false peace and false hope is that, don't worry, it's going to be short. We're just going to get out of here. And God instead says, no, I'm going to speak the truth to my people. They are actually going to be, you're actually going to be here for 70 years. And this is what I want you to do. In the midst of that, I'm going to redeem your identity and being a light to the nations. And this is how I want you to do it. So that's when he talks about planting gardens and, and building your family and growing your family, praying for the flourishing of the city um, and finding your welfare within it. And so I think this is great uh, wisdom for us as we figure out what it looks like like to press press back against the idols and to reclaim our identity um, as the people who reflect God. So I have a couple implications for us, um, just ways that we can think about doing this and practicing it in our communities. Um, one is to push back against the idol of consumption is that when we think about our community and where we live, I think we see through, through Jeremiah, there's a passage that says that if the if we trust that the sun will rise, then we then we can trust that God is going to be faithful. Oh, it's it. so good, and it's Sorry and it's this, <laughs> and and it is a sense that like God's God's faithfulness surpasses that of the sun rising every morning. And are we a people that reflect that faithfulness by investing in a community, by being there year after year after year for the people in our community, for the people in our workplace and our families? And do we reflect the God who doesn't ever waver so that gravity never lets up, so that the rains always come in due time, so that there is this trust in this good, faithful order of things. So I think that what that might look like is picking a neighborhood and living in it and staying there. I think in our consumeristic society, we want the newest experience, the newest place. We're always thinking about, oh, New York City would be fun. And, and But what would it look like to start to see the beauty where we're at and start to see ways that we can reflect God who is self-giving in the midst of community? Um, he chose Israel and he stuck with them for thousands of years. And Jesus came. God could have like come in the person of Jesus and like 
all seven continents, but he came very specifically, very locally and acted um, and chose for people to act in that in their local communities throughout the world. And the Spirit of God is faithful to spread that gospel um, from there. So I think that's one is being rooted. Another one that we see in Jeremiah that I think is really important for us today um, is that we are called to be a kingdom of priests. That is part of our identity. And so we see this book pointing to Jesus as the, the good and just king. We see it pointing to him as a good prophet who um, does who speaks prophetically and also has prophetic acts. So I think in Jeremiah, he talks about how the people have made God's temple a den of robbers. And we're that immediately was like, Oh, that's where Jesus got it from. And so when Jesus flips the tables and, and condemns the injustice happening around the temple, he is fulfilling um, his call as the good prophet. But when Jeremiah was, uh, when he found about these plots that, people wanted to take his life. He prayed like, okay, God, like I'm over this whole praying for these people and being merciful, like give them what they deserve. But we see in Jesus that he spoke truth, but that he was able to fulfill this self-giving love of God by when the murder plots against him were carried out, he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm. And so I think a community that is constantly soaked in prayer, I think this is so important because as leaders called to be priests um, and speak the truth and represent God and be as Jesus to the world, uh, I think it's so important that we avoid two things. We avoid apathy and cynicism. And I think all of us can fall in either of these categories in our hearts, either withdraw from the hard things going on in society and just be like, you know what? I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm not going to read the news, watch, listen, whatever we do now to the news. I'm just going to kind of like live in my little bubble and like be okay. Or cynicism, like we're constantly taking this stuff in and reading it and getting more bitter and more cynical and posting more on Facebook bigger and, and, and more convinced of whatever position we're in. But what we see in Jeremiah is this humble lament. We see this, this prayer of him just pouring out his brokenness for this community that he deeply loves and to the God that he is deeply committed to. And there is angst in it, um, but he always brings it before the Lord. And we see the same thing in the person of Jesus. So I think prayer and lament being as a part of our daily lives where we can bring these things honestly before God, recognizing and confessing with the very action of prayer that he is the one who will bring about uh, his kingdom one day. Um, and I think the last one that has really been stirring in me is that in our divided public life today, as we talk about these idols and gods, it is really easy to see the idol of one. Let's, let's just take the right and the left for the example to see the idol of like the right thought and to recognize the idols of it. And then to run to the left and to find our identity now um, and worship the idols of the left and, and see the ways that they challenge each other. But in our world, if we don't truly see the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ and worship him alone, we're always going to run from the arms of one God to another God. Mm. And it's so important for us to be at the foot of the cross and constantly in the story of God and wrestling with our communities about what does it look like to only sit at the foot of the cross alone. I think of like like a girl or a guy, I don't want to be sexist, like a dude <laughs> who runs from like girlfriend to girlfriend mm -hmm. to girlfriend to girlfriend and having the people listening are like, mm, don't talk about that. You know, like you run from one lover to another to another. Um, and one thing that you would say to such a person is like stop for a second mm -hmm. and become self-aware. And not like in this weird, creepy, like artificial intelligence thing, <laughs> like, you know, become self-aware. Like, what are you doing? Or why are you doing it? Become aware. And I think that a great way as the community of God, as the people mm -hmm. of God here on earth to make Jesus known in our words and in our deeds, I think one thing that we really need is awareness mm -hmm. to be aware of idolatry, to be aware that every single day there are things, people and places competing for the affections of my heart, yeah. competing for the throne of Jesus on my heart. And I have to become aware of that, number one, and aware that not only do I personally struggle with the things that I treasure more than Jesus, but I live in a culture that collectively treasures certain things more than Jesus. And not only becoming aware of that, but aware that if I run into the arms of this lover God, that there will be negative consequences, that these false gods that we run to are abusive 
girlfriends or abusive mm-hmm. boyfriends. Like there will be domestic violence in a sense, spiritually. Like if I run into the arms of consumerism, I will mistreat other people. Mm-hmm. It is inevitable. Idolatry always leads to injustice. Um, if I run into the arms of the Democratic Party and I fully embrace their idols, then I will produce injustice upon people. If I really run into the Republican Party and the idols behind it, and I'm not saying that it's bad to be a Democrat or Republican, but that both parties have idols behind them that if I run into them completely, it will lead to injustice, which is why you have people on both sides pointing out abuses and pointing out criticisms of like why this is wrong because it hurts this people. Well, this hurts that people. Um, So collectively, to just be aware that idols are competing for our affections, both personally and socially. And also, not just to be aware, but be intentional. Again, if you see, if I'm running from girlfriend to girlfriend to girlfriend, and someone stops and says, hey, dude, stop, become self-aware, what are you doing? And why are you doing it? Why are you running into the arms of another girl, another girl? And why are those relationships breaking down? What is it that you're looking for that you're not finding in romantic relationship after romantic relationship? You know, what are you doing? And so the same thing on a spiritual level. What am I doing intentionally? So with my work, just for as an example, why do I go to work? Is it so that I can make money so that I can enjoy life? Mm. Or is it so that I can bring blessing to the whole world, which is my mission. I think of, there's yeah. this dude in a church named Greg Lindsay, right? He and his wife um, have this job where they work with uh, fraternity and sorority members and uh, they, they work with them closely. And I think what if Greg Lindsay and his wife were to do their job in such a way where they're like, our job is to bring blessing to the whole world. And so who would benefit from such a mentality? Well, obviously, those ASU students who are in sororities and fraternities who interact with Greg and his wife, they would benefit. But then if they benefit and they flourish, who benefits from that? Well, whatever industries these students graduate and go into, they're going to be influenced and they're going to benefit. And the family members of these ASU students, they're going to benefit and they're going to flourish. And so what I would challenge you to do, oh, listener of the podcast, (laughs) is to write down your job and to ask yourself, if I do my job with the intention of I want to bring blessing to the world, who benefits? And then if they benefit and they flourish, who benefits from that? And who benefits from that? As opposed to going into work thinking, Oh, I just want to get through to the weekend. Oh, I just want to like do really good on this so that I get the approval of my peers. Oh, I just need this paycheck so I can go here and do that and buy this. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think that's a great place to leave us. This is a, a lot. <laughs> we we, we kind of journeying through a lot, of, a lot of different things and questions. I hope that you can take time to talk about this with your families, friends, RCs, communities, and think through really fleshing out what it looks like for you. So thank you so much for listening, guys, and we'll uh, be with you again soon.